Hi, everybody. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And this is Josh Mankiewicz. <laughs> he gets me every time. And you're listening to A Date with Dateline. Hey! And he has a new mic. He sounds amazing. I know. How about that? He wow. has professional headphones. I know. It's a whole new world here. I love it. We're so excited to have you back. I think this might be your seventh appearance on the show. Well, that's, I, this is the only show enough. I've made seven appearances on other than Dateline. Oh, I feel <laughs> that like that says something. Good. That yeah. That's good. That's a big deal. We've had two amazing Mank episodes recently, and we're going to get into both of those. But I do have a general question for you from one of our listeners, oh. which is, I think, a perfect way to start. This is from Wesley. I've recently gotten my bestie into Dateline, and she said she doesn't feel like she has a good grasp on how Josh is as a host yet. I was wondering if you have any recommendations of any episodes I could show her that are peak Josh. I gave her some suggestions. Okay, what are your suggestions? Mine were Secrets in Silver Lakes with the Wolf Pack. Very good. And Twisted Faith with the pastor... With the youth pastor, Nick Hackney. Yeah. 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 Stone Cold with Nick Morales. Yes. Who not only did not light up a room, but made everybody in the room angry. Was a sort of a non-traditional Dateline episode in which the victim was not beloved by everyone. What else? The favorite son. Mickey. How could I have forgotten Mickey? I am shocked you didn't say the favorite son. I'm I'm ashamed at myself. Featuring the fabulous Mickey who stole her daughter's engagement ring to give yeah. to her son because her son needed it more. Joey needed it. Yes, we Joey have merch needed that it. says yes. Joey needed Joey it. Joey needed it. Yeah. Those are some good ones. What's well, the one with the guy they called Injun Joe? Oh yeah, I don't remember what that was called. That was But that was a wild one too. Yes, that was about Connie who was nearly lost her foot to a car bomb and everything yes. that followed. You've had so many yes. incredible episodes. Yes, that's the one where I interviewed the bad guy from behind a big from thick pane of glass. The, and I said yep. to him, did you ever think about getting a divorce? Which is the question. Yeah. Every, every dateline. Yeah. That is peak mank, that question behind a pane of glass. One thing that has occurred to me recently, which is, you know, it's now pretty much accepted among reporters and observers that when the former president tells a story in which he says that somebody came to him with tears in their eyes to talk about whatever it is he's talking about, that that's, those stories are inevitably not true. There is never anybody who's confronted him with tears in their eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When people say to me in interviews, Mr. Mankiewicz, that generally means they're lying. Interesting. Yeah. Because we take umbrage when someone calls you or the other host by their first name. Mm-hmm. We think it's too personal. If they're like, listen, Josh. I, we don't like weird. that. Right. You're bringing up something that I've actually thought about before, which is, you know, th- there's an issue with that. I mean, when I was covering the Michael Jackson case again and again and again and again and again, I mean, I must have done a dozen hours on that over the years. It was very common among journalists during that time to refer to Mr. Jackson as Michael. I did not ever do that. I referred to him as Jackson, Mr. Jackson, the singer, him. You know, whatever he or him or whatever, wherever we were in the script, but not by his first name, because I didn't know him. We did not meet. And I did not want the viewers to think that we were on some kind of first name basis or that we were friends, even though the audience clearly felt um, a lot of the audience felt they were on a first name basis with him. I I wanted to maintain some editorial distance. So I don't know. We know if anybody noticed that, but I definitely very interesting. I definitely went out of my way to make sure that I never referred to him by his first name. 
Mm-hmm. Did you refer to him as the king of pop? No. <laughs> no. But we did use that, which we I think we only might have used once or twice. Would have been as a filler. As well bit, as the, the, the self-styled king of pop. Or the, the, man, the, man, the man who anointed himself king of pop. Yeah. Right. When you give yourself the nickname, it's not the same. <laughs> no, it's not. Can we do an entire episode about that? Sure. I would love to do that. Sure. Because I have a lot of I have a lot of questions and thoughts. So Kimberly, are you down? Yeah. Trigger yeah. we'd have to do a trigger warning for sure. Yes, we would. Yes. It would the episode would be called Trigger Warning. That's sure. the episode title. It's fine. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean that's great. All right. So those are some episodes that Yeah, uh, I think for, those are all great. Those I are the can't episodes. believe I forgot Mickey. I will never forgive myself. Well, I think that'll that should get Wesley started, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a I think that's great. Talking about your latest episode, Behind Door 813, Natalie Bannon, who is a listener of ours, you, I'm sure, have met her. We adore. We adore. Mm -hmm. Said, no questions, just an entire episode on Matthew. He's the new Mickey. I could not agree more. Matthew, for those of you who saw the episode, was Brenda's ex, who had some hair-raising stories to tell about her. But had some hair-raising things to say about himself. Introduced himself by talking about how he lost all his weight. Okay, uh, so that was one of Katie's questions was like, yes. did you say, tell us about yourself? No. And his dating profile description came out? So his elevator pitch? That's no, not I, an icebreaker for you. You no. don't generally go into an interview and be like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about Matt, yourself or, and what's been on your scale the last few years. Yeah, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't do that. How's your weight loss journey? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you look trim. You look trim now, but I'm guessing you weren't always. Is that right? Yeah, that's not usually how I begin interviews. No, he blurted out all of that. And then there was so much more that would have made such an amazing Dateline hour just on its own, except it didn't have anything to do with the story we were covering. And we had so many details in that story that we probably ended up leaving out more of that. But I mean, for instance, like when we would say, when I said, you know, you feel bad about, you know, what happened. I look to the future. I don't look to the past. I mean, he was a, he had a philosopher. He was an amazing guy. He was. He was also sort of a savant of like many things. He painted, he uh, did uh, he, ballet, he, he owned his own insurance arts. company, yeah. I believe. There was like a string of things, none of which we saw in B-roll, by the way. So no. he did not want to do those on camera. We were so compressed in the time schedule for this that we probably did not have all the time we needed to shoot all the different pieces of b-roll and other things that we wanted we had some pictures of him you did oh you did definitely oh, no yeah. he had a little dog he was walking yeah. his dog i just really wanted to see what his Ballet. art looked like because i could not picture it he said specifically he was a painter and i was like what kind of art does matthew do he was definitely a Again, this is one of those things that I think kind of fell by the wayside because we were so unbelievably so busy. Just, yeah. yeah, just like cranking together to get that thing on the air. Because like doing that and the episode before it, we were just, there were a lot of late nights. And he would have been a great like web extra, just all of his stuff. I love the web extras. I know the, yes. the web Can extras they still do it? Yeah, they maybe. Add it. I'll talk to them. Yeah, it was good. The world according to Matthew would be great. The most interesting man in Irving, Texas. He had a lot to say. You're right. He's kind of the new Mickey because he stole every scene he was in. He was great. He did. Yeah. And we were just fascinated. Like, is he joking? Is he serious? No, he was serious. He was all serious about everything. Katie. I told you, Kimberly. Yeah. Kimberly yeah. was convinced that he was just had a very dry yeah. sense of humor. And I said, no, he's very, this no. is a serious no, This thing is absolutely him. him. When he walked out, the crew, like, <laughs> they were like, wow. 
Uh, that was quite an interview. He was a very interesting character, and I would have loved to have put more of him in. Love that. So how long he and Brenda were in sort of a longer relationship, right? Way, way longer. He was way longer with- Several years. Yeah, a couple of years with Brenda. She and Jonathan Cruz only went out for about three months. I'm just wondering, he was very sort of nonplussed in his storytelling about the scissors and going driving to the mother's house, like sort of things that seemed very shocking, but he seemed not at all worried about those. Is that sort of the sense you got? He said, he and Brenda had some fight, and then she said, all right, I'm getting in the car, and she had the scissors with her. She's like, I'm going over to your mom's house. I'm like, all right, well, I mean, were you worried? He goes, no, my mom can take care of herself. She knows some martial arts. Yeah. You know, she goes, I don't know, maybe Brenda was kidding. I don't really know. He was kind of like matter of fact about the whole thing, but he wasn't lying about the story or he didn't sound like he was. He sounded like, no, no, I believe the story. I mean, he was, well, it certainly fits with everything we know. And he's not one thing that I think for me anyway, emerged when I was talking with Matthew is that he has no ax to grind against Brenda. I mean, you know, even he did not, he said that he did not think that she was a killer and that ended up being used in the trial. He said that in his deposition when asked, and he did not say you know, this woman is a terror. I don't doubt for a second that what everything Jonathan's family says is true. I don't, you know, I thought she was going to kill me and I'm sorry she she did kill someone else. That did not, nothing like that came out of his mouth. He sort of sought to downplay the incidents with Brenda, even as he was recounting them and talking mm-hmm. about how, I mean, there's some of them are pretty hair raising. I mean, she threw a fit because he wanted to go to the hospital when his sister-in-law was having a baby. That's a little hard to believe. He didn't want her to be in an elevator with another woman. What's the biggest red flag to you? Is it the blocking all female friends on Facebook? Well, that's a big one. I mean, somebody who wants to do that doesn't have any boundaries and they've got some significant control issues and they're telling you some things pretty loudly. And if you don't listen to that. Yeah. They screamed at the friend Emily for hugging him. Yeah. I mean, and the elevator and the sister-in-law who just had a baby. Once he's dead and the family says, can we make a, can we use the Facebook page to make a memorial? And she says, well, okay, but you can't add back any of those women. He's dead. Is he going to have a relationship with them from behind the grave? All of that are signs that you should head for the hills. Well, a wise man once told us, sometimes it's not just love that's blind. Sometimes jealousy is too. Thank you. That was very good. (laughs) Thank you. That's, yeah. That's one of the few things I put in there that didn't fall out during the editing process. One of the big things revolves around Jonathan's tie collection Mm -hmm. and the magazine in it. Can you go over once again your hanky system? Are they kept in a climate-controlled panic room? Yes, so that one's behind the bookshelf behind you. Yes, is there like a secret book that you yes, pull? And yes, then and a, then the whole okay. thing just opens up. Yeah, it's a vault. It's just all. Yeah. It's just it's pocket squares taller than I am. No, my pocket squares are all in a big pile, which keeps getting rearranged as I pull them out. It's in my closet, but it's kind of at eye level, so you can see them, which is good. You don't want to have to get down on your knees or something, or like you know, you want it kind of right here when you're. And I have all the uh, makes sense. I have all the ties out too so you can see them hanging over bars okay. now, one day we'll have a little video tour of my closet that'll be a- i would- mean our listeners are begging for yeah. it they are volunteering to go to your place and do some marie kondo organizing of I, your I system probably do need some marie condoing yes I love a closet tour. I'm down. Right. Uh, especially because I know I know you have a lot. I would only of, do it for Date with Dateline, but yeah. You know, yes. 
I'd but be so excited. I'm gonna have to straighten up a little bit in there. But okay. it also, we want you know, the that, real tour. That closet is also where I record all day lines. So you will see, in addition to ties and jackets and things, you'll also see the microphone and everything I use, which is, which is not this. This is not where Datelines get recorded because this room doesn't have any sound baffling in it. You have the soundproofing in that. Yeah, I used to. I don't have any soundproofing, but I have clothes all around exactly. the microphone. Nice. And that apparently it's, does it. I love it that you're recording surrounded by pocket squares. That feels right. It, it does. So in this case, because there wasn't a criminal prosecution, can you talk a little bit about why you... Th- there were a lot of reasons sort of given as to why they might not proceed with a criminal prosecution. Was there anything that you remember as being like, okay, well, that makes sense. They absolutely can't prosecute. Well, I mean, there was nothing this. that, I mean, there was a lot of evidence on both sides. I mean, on yeah. the, the, you know, the family essentially believes that their case is this. Jonathan was not the kind of person who was going to shoot himself. He certainly would not do it deliberately. He was not depressed or suicidal or and had never expressed any thoughts in that way. In fact, he had this new job that he liked. He had a brand new apartment. He was a guy who seemed to be looking to the future, and he had not expressed sadness to anyone. So that's part of it. Okay, that doesn't always prove it, but that's not something to completely discount. Sometimes people put on a brave face, even though they are deeply depressed and upset inside. Okay. Jonathan, as to an accidental shooting, the family's argument is that Jonathan knew a lot about firearms and had been trained on firearm safety since he was a child by his grandfather, and then later had much more formal training, shot competitively. This was not a guy who would not know that there was a round in a gun. And in any event, this is not a guy who would clown around with a gun. Then they would say, here's what Jonathan was about to break up with Brenda, and her track record is one of colossal jealousy and anger at anybody not doing what she wants them to do in a relationship. Yeah. And then add to that the weird angle that Jonathan has said to have shot That's himself. That's the big one. Which, you know, I mean, when you try and do that, you almost can't get the right angle. It's hard to see why anybody would do that. And it's also hard to see how that angle matches up with what Brenda claims happened, which is he says to her, look, I'm going to show you how much I love my, how much I love you, honey. I'm going to show you how much I love you. Cover your ears. And then does this weird thing with the gun. When people are clowning around, if they believe that there is nothing in the gun, they're putting it to their head or their whatever, but they're they're not reaching across themselves and then Mm -hmm. pointing the gun back from their left side to their right side. I mean, that just that doesn't fit with what she claims happened, even if you discount the reports of her tremendous jealousy and rage. Right. Even just that. On the other side. Right. That's a thing. On the other Mm -hmm. side, the. Police and prosecutors have argued to the family that because the bed that was shooting happened when Jonathan was in a bed, right? because the bed, they had to take the bed apart to get the slug, and they think the slug may have rolled around afterwards. And so they think they can't tell the exact angle that the slug took because they're not sure where it ended up. I'm no forensic pathologist, but it would seem to me that they know from... The body, don't they? they? they, I would think they would know from the body what angle the bullet took roughly. I mean, Mm -hmm. if it went through him, you know it went in here and you know it came out here and it's not curving. I mean, it it went through him. So I would think you should be able to 
essentially put a rod through that virtually and figure out where the bullet would have ended up and where the muzzle of the gun was. But again, I'm giving police benefit of the doubt here. They didn't want to talk with us about this. I think and they didn't take a picture of the gun. Well, they are not. They're a department that doesn't do a lot of murders. And I think one of the reasons they might not be going forward is also that they might not have done some sort of elementary work early in the case, which may have made a prosecution extremely difficult going forward. Because the sense that I got overall was that the district attorney's office was willing to proceed, but the police department was not. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, look, in the criminal justice system, the people are represented <laughs> by two separate yet equally important groups, yeah. the police who investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. Clang, clang. And, ding, ding, and when those two groups are not on the same page, that's when you have things happen like this, mm-hmm. in which one wants to go forward and the other doesn't. And if the police department doesn't think that there's a case, you can't really walk into the courtroom and prosecute Brenda when the defense attorney is going to say the police don't want to be you don't, here. The police don't yes. even think she's guilty. Why are we here? That's the problem. So but then the police do think she's guilty because well, weren't the parents pulled aside very early and told by a police officer that don't it, think they this thought was maybe a it could be an accident, though. They were just saying we don't think it's a suicide. Clearly, oh. early on, police investigated this as if it were a homicide. Mm-hmm. And. Some of their interviews with Brenda seem like the kind of, if not controversial, at least skeptical interview that you would ask someone who you think is not telling you the full Mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as one of the cops said to the other one recorded by body cam footage, something on the order of, you know, I've asked her a bunch of times and her story is consistent. She did tell a consistent story to police. Her story, I believe, where they came down with police. And this is, you know. There may be mistakes that police made that we are unaware of that made them think we shouldn't try to get this into a courtroom. And that may be why they said to the family at one point, we're going to get her the next time, as if somehow Jonathan Cruz's death was some sort of like, you know, like Mm -hmm. mulligan in golf. Right. Which is an appalling thing to say to the parents of any murder victim. Pretty rough. Yeah. So there may be things that we don't know about in this investigation. As I say, police were not open with us at all. Mm -hmm. But they did answer some of our questions. We did do a Freedom of Information Act request. We got a lot of that stuff from them. Some of it was more than the attorneys had seen in that civil case before they went to trial. What we got didn't really shift the balance of information here one way or the other. Some of it supported Brendan. Some of it supported the family. But You know, I think that is the bottom line is that police thought that her story was not probable, not likely, but not impossible. And that plus some errors being made, like moving the gun around and not dusting for fingerprints until six months had gone by. That may have been an issue in why there wasn't a prosecution. Now, this story is not over. The family is trying something called a coroner's inquest, which is a fairly complicated legal proceeding in which there will essentially be a trial. And it's a trial as to whether or not the medical examiner's finding should be changed. And if they do get that coroner's inquest, which is not a guarantee, and they do win that hearing and they do get the medical examiner's finding changed from undetermined to homicide, then... There will be another attempt to get police to prosecute this as a homicide, which is a lot easier to do when the medical examiner has now ruled it as a homicide. And then 
things may change or they may not. But at the moment, that's where we are. The story's not over, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to it's not over in the sense that the Cruz family has some things they're going to continue trying. Yeah. Whether those are going to bear fruit or not, we don't know. They're definitely going to keep fighting. Is it helpful in a sorry in a corner coroner's inquest when they're trying to do that? Is it helpful to go forward knowing that they have won this wrongful death suit, like having that under their belt to show the court, like, hey, she was convicted in civil court, or does that not really matter with um, stuff like that? I'm like that. first of all, I am no attorney, so consider that. But how much of that is going to be admissible? I mean, I know that, for example, one of the reasons that Brenda took the fifth on the stand in the civil case is because all of that is ultimately discoverable in a criminal case. So mm-hmm. you don't want to testify to something under oath in a civil case that could later be used against you in a criminal action. In a criminal case. Uh, okay. And and as her attorney said, I don't know if this got on the air or not, but he said, I, yes, any, he any said attorney, prosecutorial yeah, misconduct. Any attorney who said, her. don't take the fifth, answer the questions, would have been guilty yeah. of tremendous misconduct because that could yeah. all come back to bite you, given that she hasn't been prosecuted for this. So now if there had been, if she had been prosecuted and, for example, like found not guilty, then you know, you can't be prosecuted again for that. That might be a different situation. But in this case, there's been no criminal prosecution against Brenda, mm-hmm. and she is completely entitled to the presumption of innocence that anybody else is. And so I think that's why her attorney said, you know, do not answer these questions. So the answer to your question, is the civil case verdict and the information in it admissible in the coroner's inquest? I don't know if it's admissible. I do know that the civil case does provide you with a little bit of a roadmap as to what works and what doesn't work when you're trying to persuade a jury about what happened behind door 813. A couple technical questions. They have undetermined DNA on the gun. They lost her DNA or miss whatever. Or never Can't or they, never took it. It's not or quite never clear. took it. Because the thing Can't they, said, they take it now? Well, they would have to get a warrant to take it now. And to you do that, probable. I believe they would have to get over some kind of probable cause bar. Yeah. And to do that, they would have to essentially write a legal statement for the search warrant saying, we believe a crime has been committed and we believe that Brenda is responsible for this crime. And therefore, we need you to compel her to give us a DNA sample so we can compare it to the one we have. And they've essentially made a decision not to go ahead with this. So it's why the undetermined finding by the coroner, like so much is going to hinge on that. If that changes, then I think getting her DNA is going to be one of the first things that an investigation does. And Mm -hmm. then with a homicide finding by a coroner, then I think you have much less trouble going to any magistrate and getting a court order for somebody else's DNA. But, Mm -hmm. you know, on an undetermined, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. Oh, yeah. It really does hinge on that. Oh, wow. We had a couple theories, and so did our listeners, that maybe she wasn't just trying to kill him, that maybe she was threatening to kill herself. He wrestled the gun away and it was an accident, or she was trying to threaten him to never talk to Emily again, didn't know there was a bullet in the chamber. Well, that doesn't really make sense because where the magazine was. This was some sort of... I actually think the accident theory... Makes more sense to me if Brenda's holding the gun. I don't think he would do that because I don't think 
I don't think anybody shoots themselves at that angle. Right. So, it's more that he was trying to get it, so he was pushing hands down. Right, or but something, there's gunshot you know. residue on his hand, so uh, maybe she's holding the gun and he's reaching out to try to stop the gun or push it right. away, something like right. that, or get it away from her. I mean, yes. it's entirely possible that this was some kind of accident, but not the way that's being described, that she was, you know, trying to shoot him, although she didn't think the gun was loaded, mm-hmm. you know, or she was waving the gun around at him and didn't intend to pull the trigger and it went off. I mean, it, yeah. it, there are accidental scenarios that are different from the one offered in court, which was that he didn't realize there was a bullet in the chamber. More likely, the accident scenarios all make more sense to me if it's Brenda I agree. doing something with the gun. And she would still be guilty just of a different charge right. if it was would, accidental manslaughter right. or something a, like that. Right, right. It would not a homicide. It would not be a murder case. Mm. Yeah, which no. is definitely something that would, I'm sure that if this does indeed go to trial, I bet all that will come up in some sort of plea or something. I bet that, I mean, that, that would happen. I mean, look, if, if does, this ever does, at the moment, I am not prepared to to suggest that this is ever going to go any farther than yeah. it has right now. It could. I know the Cruz family is not giving up, but uh, I, I would not predict the future on this. And I know that one yeah. of the things I talked to the Cruz family about is, you know, like, are you okay if this is where it ends? And they are because they got some jurors to believe their version of events. And that was enough because they think to themselves, it's not just us, you know? Yeah. Not they got that. validation right. that they're not crazy. Yeah, that people is... say, right. People say we're crazy for arguing. Well, we're not. Some other people agree with us. Yeah, and now a lot of people agree with them. Yeah. You know, I want to make sure that we give Brenda the benefit of the doubt in this story at all times. Brenda has not been charged with any crime. Brenda is entitled to exactly the presumption of innocence that any of us are. She is not as not guilty as any of the three of us. And whether that's going to change, I don't know. As we continue to talk to Mank, let's talk about how maybe Brenda or Jonathan could have benefited from the services at Talkify, specifically Jonathan. Specifically. Josh Mankiewicz doesn't want you to wind up on a dateline just because you're tired of being single and watching Dateline alone. Attention daters out there. We suggest using Talkify, the U.S.'s number one modern matchmaking service that helps you safely find success. Love it. Don't date the guy with so many red flags that Josh will raise his eyebrows at you if you ever appear on a dateline. Correct. You know, when those eyebrows go up, they're not coming down. Eyebrows go up, red flags go up as well. Exactly. So trust the compatibility specialist at Talkify to hand select candidates for you after meeting with you to find out what you're looking for. Then they select people. They screen the dates. They do the background checks. This is all crucial information. Yes, it is. In this day and age, yes. They do the interviews and they ask the tough questions that are too awkward for you to ask on the first date. Questions like, have you ever been under suspicion of murdering your spouse? There we go. It's a basic question. Yeah. What's your favorite color? Were you ever on a cliff and maybe accidentally someone fell next to you? Exactly. Yeah. Then Talkify handles all communications with the candidates for you, which makes the space safe and stress-free. And 80% of matched clients met their person within the first 12 matches, which is not that long. And I guarantee most of you have gone on more than 12 dates and you're still looking because it's rough out there. Oh, yeah. And right now, Talkify is offering our listeners 20% off when you become a client at Talkify.com slash date dateline. That's T-A-W-K. 
talk dot com slash date dateline for 20% off when you become a client. And maybe if you find your match, Katie and I will officiate your wedding. That is a loose offer, not in, in paper. It, it is just a verbal contract right now. Talkify.com slash date dateline. Highly recommend, guys. Get talking. Get talking. Katie, what makeup can someone wear if they have... I don't want to out myself as having a sweating problem, but I do have a sweating problem. Mm. And everything I put on my face drips down onto my shirt. I have basically. you covered. Actually, no, I don't have you covered. Thrive has you covered. Thrive Cosmetics is the summer savior, folks. Aside from being products that are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, they're made with skin-loving ingredients. No parabens, no sulfates, no phthalates. And they do this all without compromising performance. And that's why I love Thrive. And when I mean performance, Thrive makes beauty easy with all day long wear. It's also easy to remove when I am done with my face for the day. Yes. That's important. I don't want to scrub. And as the weather gets warmer, I am looking for eye products that specifically stay on my eyes so that I don't need to touch up no matter how sweaty my eyelids get. Yes. I have sweaty eyelids and yeah. sweaty eyebrows. Yeah, I feel that. And yeah. Stuff goes everywhere when you're sweaty in that area. That's mm -hmm. why I want to talk about the Infinity Waterproof Eyeliner from Thrive. I have been loving this. I've been using it every day. It is waterproof and smudge-proof all day wear. It has this really intense high-impact pigmentation that you get without having to go back and forth. It's one swipe mm. and you're done. Also, mm -hmm. a built-in sharpener on the end for creating ultra-fine lines and a little smudge tip. So if you want to smoke it out, it's just effortless blending. So really, smoke it out. you can be a noob and do this. Easy smoky eye with one product. They also have a lot of shades besides brown and black, and their shades complement every skin tone. Also, this product has more than 5,000 five-star reviews. It's for a reason. Wow. Infinity Waterproof Eyeliner. Incredible. Also, here at A Date with Dateline, we love a company with a cause. And with Thrive Cosmetics, cause is in their name for a reason. As part of their mission, every purchase supports organizations that help communities thrive, such as those battling domestic abuse, being unhoused, cancer, and more. So if you need any more reasons to th try Thrive, I'm out because this should be plenty. <laughs> Go to thrivecosmetics.com forward slash date dateline right now, and you can get an exclusive 15% off your first order. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S.com slash date dateline for 15% off your first order. This spring, have your eye on the prize, and the prize is Thrive. Yeah. Thank you, Thrive. Those were good rhymes. Back to Josh. I quickly wanted to say we agreed with you. I think Katie did too, that she might not have known the apartment address when you and Sheila were going back and forth. You know, much was made of Brenda not knowing the address of where Jonathan lived. But, you know, if you assume that her story is true or even that part of her story is true, mm -hmm. right? And that she wasn't expecting this gunshot, this episode with Jonathan, it's not inconceivable that, 
you know, that she'd be one rattled and two, that she'd only heard the address once or twice. And she would be able to say to, you know, if somebody had said to her that afternoon, where's Jonathan? She'd be like, you know, the place right up there, two blocks mm-hmm. up on the left with the red shutters, you know. Right. But that's different from knowing the exact street address. That so is true. Is it conceivable that in that moment of stress, she did not know the address off the top of her head? It's possible. You know, the family and their attorneys and Sheila see something darker there. They may be correct about that. I mean, is it possible that her, you know, that she was so diabolical that she was not only shooting Jonathan, but waiting for him to die so that he could not say to first responders, my my crazy girlfriend shot me? I mean, you know, that's not impossible, but. Although it does sound like moaning in the background. It It does sound like. Certainly does. It does. It sounded like moaning to me. I agree. Yeah. So I don't know if that one is, I don't know about that. No. P.I. Sheila. Well, I took this case, this story, primarily. You know, I don't have to do any, you know, we get offered a lot of stories. And, you know, sort of the rule at Dateline is you don't have to do any particular story that they propose for you. But, of course, you're also not going to say no to all of them either because we all want to, you know, we all want to be working on something. And we're usually all pretty slammed at any one time. Mm -hmm. So, but I jumped at this story because I had worked with Sheila Isaki before on the story that introduced her to Dateline viewers, which was, oh, dear, what's it called? Secrets in the Night. Middle in the middle of the, in the, middle of the, of the night. night. In the middle of the night, it's called, yes, which was the 1983 murder of Angie Samoda. Yes. Who was her friend. And Sheila, who was just this sort of suburban mom became a PI to help solve that murder because the Dallas police department would not said they would not speak with her unless she was a family member or a private eye. So she became a private eye. And then she got on the phone to the police department, like literally like 700 and something times to persuade them to test this rape kit that they had. And then when they couldn't find it to start looking for the rape kit so they could test it. And she was, and is formidable. And so I already knew Sheila and I'd run into her at a couple of, I think I saw her at CrimeCon one year. Oh, wow. And I'd bumped into her somewhere else, I think, over the years. So we'd sort of kept in touch, although I had not interviewed her again or worked with her on a story since that Angie Samoda story back then. But the producer, the field producer of this story, Kathy Singer, was also the producer of the Angie Samoda story. And so she knew Sheila also. So they had stayed in touch. So when I heard that... Sheila was back with another story in which she was the PI. I thought, okay, well, you know, I've known her and I know she's a known quantity. So that's one reason why I I was sort of anxious to do this because I'd worked with her before. And I sort of didn't know anything about the story when I agreed to do that. Because how often is it that Dateline will do things like this where it's really just a civil case that we have right now and there is no criminal risk? I feel like it's not that often. Normally, we're in criminal court. I can't remember when we, I mean, look, it's unusual when we do a story in which no one is murdered. Sure. Andrea is about to air a story now in which no one is murdered. It's a different kind of crime. And... You know, usually there is a murder or more than one murder in our storytelling. In this case, there is the death of Jonathan Cruz, but there is no prosecution. And there is no, there's a trial, but it's not a criminal trial. Mm -hmm. So this was definitely unusual. It's not about whether an investigation happened and somebody was wrongly convicted. It's about whether somebody was wrongly not prosecuted, which is a whole other kind of story. I can't really remember doing Mm -hmm. anything like this before. Yeah, it was great. 
It was a great episode. It was a really fascinating story. Good. Do you have Um, anything else on it, Katie? I just wanted to know about Sheila, because I was thinking maybe if you strike up the cold case squad again, could she be up for consideration? I mean, she's been working a lot, I'm guessing. With Yolanda and John Lewin. Well, nothing would make me happier than to reconstitute the cold case squad, but I... Everyone's busy. Yeah, they're all moved on to other stuff. We um, can clear our schedules if you're right. if you just need bodies. In I'd the rather. Room. Well, I mean, I I feel yeah, I'd certainly feel safe with the two of you. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. If we we're have, gonna we have a lot redefine of redefine amateur detective here. We are as amateur as they get. <laughs> not not anymore. Not any more amateur than I am. <laughs> I don't think so. We're gonna need at least one lawyer because I have yeah. a lot of questions yeah. for law. Right. So that's yeah. <laughs> Moving on to Kristen Smart, which was another. That was your second episode covering that case? How long have you been covering this? Well, Dateline has been on this for like, I don't know, five years or something, maybe more. We've been on it a long time. And, uh, you know, we've been sort of slowly gathering string on this. And then we did a story when Paul Flores was arrested, Mm -hmm. which was about a year ago, maybe a little Mm -hmm. bit more. And then we just sort of waited, you know, through the months after that and then the prelim and then waiting for trial and then even after the trial like sentencing got delayed we thought this whole Kristen smart thing was going to air in the fall but then Mm. the sentencing got delayed from i think october or november until march so then we were waiting until march 10th and then it aired on the 21st so we had a giant team on this like probably close to 20 people on this which is much more than normally works on dateline i think it's very it's all your show is a lot more last minute than these other shows because you're waiting for things to happen. Well, um, I'm always trying to hint at them that we want screeners ahead of time, but I think sometimes they don't even know what is going to air because no, I mean, the it's schedule, so last minute. The schedule can be pretty fluid. It's not like we have 10 things ready and it can be any one of them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're trying to beat somebody else to air. And sometimes right. we just want to be, we want to, you know, once we have something, we want to like go ahead and air it. But in both these cases, both in the story of Jonathan Cruz and in the Kristen Smart story, we had all kinds of elements of this that broke very, very, very close to deadline and interviews that came in late and information that came in late that had to be examined and, you know, looked over and synthesized and then, you know, figure out how to put it in the script. So both of those were really sort of right down to the wire. And that was sort of the crazy thing about the Kristen Smart case, which is, you know, 26 years old, but we were still scrambling to get everything done. You know, we had this great interview with the parents. Yeah. Just a couple of days after sentencing. And then we also, you know, prosecutors, cops, sheriff, some other people, one more with, you know, Chris Lambert, Chris. who was so instrumental in all this. So it was a race to the finish line, I will say. Wow. At the beginning of the episode, you said something like, to people of a certain age, yes, 1996 feels like a long time ago or just yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I was what? at Dateline. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> We're still mad at Keith. I'm still mad at Keith for saying women of a certain age, and he meant women in their early 40s. And we took that very personally. What do you think the phrase woman of a certain age means? It means you should never use it in a broadcast. (laughs) There we go. Keith. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you can flay him on that when he comes back here. (laughs) But 
think I we will, did when he came on the yeah, first you time. You can do it again. Do um, it again. No, <laughs> just I mean, so he remembers like, for, I mean, yeah. for going like, forward. It's like, you know, that guy on CNN saying, you know, women are criticizing Michelle Yeoh for not being in her prime. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wow. Oh, that was brutal. Yeah. That was so dumb. I'll tell you a great Michelle Yeoh story since we're on this. Okay. So there's a GIF or GIF, depending on how you pronounce it. And that is divided by people of a certain age. Those under like 14, I think. (laughs) There's a GIF. That's how I say it. Of Michelle, of Michelle Yeoh kicking me, which you can find out there. It's if you, I think if you look up Dateline, you'll find it. That's amazing. Yeah. And it was because back in the pre-crime days, we did a profile of her when she was a Bond girl. She had been a very well-known martial arts expert, and she'd been in a bunch of those movies. But this was sort of her jump to sort of the Hollywood big screen. And she was cast in, I think, Tomorrow Never Dies with Pierce Brosnan. And so we did a profile of her. This was back when we were not doing murders all the time. And so we interviewed her. And of course, she was, as no one will be surprised, she was completely charming and nice. And then we said to her at the end, how would you feel about kicking me? Because we thought it would be a funny way to get off the air. And so she did. And she gave me this little talking to ahead of time. A safety talk? Oh, yeah. She was like, look, don't move. She's like, like, really don't move. Um, she sounded like the kind of instruction you'd expect from a firearms expert. She said, do <laughs> right. not lean into this at all. She goes, do not move towards me. She goes, just stay absolutely still. I'm like, okay. So then she stands there and I stand there and I was, she was blindingly fast, like a snake striking. Uh-huh. And I was cognizant of the fact that she started to move. Like I was aware, like I was thinking to myself, here we go. And as I was thinking that this foot came out of like nowhere and smacked me sort of between my left chest and upper arm. And I know exactly where it was because half the bruise was on my left chest and the other was on my upper arm. So I could like make it fit. I could tell you exactly where my arm was at that moment. Right. And left a huge bruise, which of course is sort of what we expected. And I staggered back. I made a huge thumping noise, like hitting a heavy bag, you know? And I was like, Oh, wow. you know, and she was like, are you all right? You know, and I'm like, fine. It's good. All good. Is what we so asked she for. Spin, she spun kicked you. She no, like, uh, not spun kicked me, but she sort of like, but her leg just shot out like this. And she kicked me with her right leg. She definitely just yeah, like, got boom. some force you could, behind You it. could tell her whole body was behind it, but she didn't spin yeah. around and she was on the ground the whole time. I mean, she didn't jump in the air at all, but she turned and with like what I would describe as like maximum torque, like whipped her leg around and hit me. Wow. Exactly. I think where she was wearing high heels, too. And that was good. We used it. We said, thanks. She went away. That was that. We did the piece. We aired it. Then a couple of years later, she was doing Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. So she was sort of like on her way then. And I was at LAX on my way to some story and I was killing time waiting for my flight. And I'm like, literally like in the store where you buy, you know, the newspaper and candy and water, you know, and I'm just like looking around thinking like, I just have to wait 48 minutes before I can get on the flight. And I'm aware that somebody is next to me looking at me and I look over and it's Michelle Yeoh, who by then is a even bigger movie star than she was when she kicked me. And we've mm-hmm. had zero communication for that time. And it wasn't like the month earlier. It was like a couple of years ago. Wow. And I said, hi. And she said, 
I was sure that was you. How are you? And I thought, you have me mistaken for somebody else, right? And I'm like, I'm Josh from Dateline, you know? She goes, I know, I kicked you, and you did a story <laughs> about it. I'm like, yeah. Thinking like, the way this is supposed to go is I'm supposed to walk up to you and say hi, right? Uh, and you're supposed to have security, like, throw me on the ground. But instead, <laughs> like, here she is, like, introducing herself again and saying hi. And I said, you know, congratulations on all your success. And she said, thanks. I'm, I that. found it, and I cannot stop watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Send it to me. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It Basically, you were in everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, this yeah, you were. Ahead, you just didn't know. Yeah. Way ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, I will say that when I saw that she was nominated and then she won, that made me very happy because she was great. Oh, I, I love, love that, that when good people, that's yeah, no, that's she, the best of the best. She, it's she, lived, so up to, she lived up to everything you'd want to be true about somebody like that. Yeah. Couldn't have, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have been nicer or more professional or more polite. So good for her. And that all, the reason we started talking about that was women of a certain age. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So. She's timeless. Yeah. She is. And yeah. And Michelle Yeoh is of a certain age. Then count me in. So. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. A lot of this episode with Kristen focused on the college years. People are wondering, what were you like in college? What did you have? What was your major? Were you a partier? Yeah. Um, well, I went to a college that frequently, like an entire weekend would go by and there would not be any parties on campus. We didn't have a lot of parties there. Oh. I went to Haverford in Philadelphia. It was kind of a school for grinds and for people who wanted to go on and get in professional school, which is what I thought I wanted. I thought I wanted to go to law school at some point. I mean, when I was in high school, I thought I would want to go to law school. But then I got to college and I realized I did not want to go to law school. I didn't even really want to be in college. By the time I was a sophomore, I was very interested in this business. And it was actually during sophomore year that I got when I was 19 that I got my first job in a newsroom. It was 1975 is when, you know, I sort of began working in TV news. Wow. And then after I got out, then I was pretty focused on doing this. I majored in sociology, which was kind of, oh, was all right. If I did it again, I would major in American history. And I would probably go somewhere bigger, too. That was a very small college. Yeah. But nobody was a partier there because there just weren't a lot of parties. And, you know, all through high school, I did not have what many of you would refer to as a date. So it was not until college that I actually even like had a girlfriend. So yes, I was a late bloomer. Does she? Do you think she's out there watching Dateline? Thinking she, what she might been? be. We're still in touch. She's doing okay. okay. Yeah. Aww. Did you have a f- cool, fun nickname? Like Kristen changed her name to Roxy. Did her parents talk about that at all? The, the yeah, I mean that she Roxy? was just you know. This is, look, she's 19. This is Yeah, that's what you do. That's what we talked, yeah, we talked about it. This is what you do. You're trying on new stuff. You're trying on new clothes and new hairstyles and new hair colors. Uh, You know, she was every, every, (laughs) right? (laughs) Or Katie's of a certain age. Right, right. Pipe down. Uh, Yes. (laughs) It totally is. Yeah, it's that, it's that time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, if it's. You know, if you're not wearing a crystal and you're trying some kind of bracelet or you're sure. or you've given yourself a nickname because you think that's cool and you want to be. Mm-hmm. But you didn't have any. I would love to say that my, you know, nickname was Shark Man or Rhino. Yeah, Flash. Or, yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. But no, I didn't have a nickname. We're all known as Mank, all the Mank. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. we're all known as that forever. That's both good and bad. I've never had a nickname that I know of anyway. Maybe there's, you know. I doubt it. Yeah, like a bad one? No. Yeah, right? No. Like a nasty one? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When you said she was asking people for gum and 
remember she's 18. Yeah, I mean, like... Was that a wink, like, gum was something else? No, 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 no. I mean, I think she was looking for gum, but, like, today, like, you don't spend a lot of time trying to procure gum at a party. Like, maybe you would ask the host if you really want gum, right? My sense is that gum chewing has diminished in recent years anyway. Like, I see a lot... I think that might be true. I see a lot fewer people chewing gum uh, than I I used to. So, no, no, it was not. Gum was not a euphemism for something else. It was just, she wanted gum. Well, we really missed a boat on that one. We were really convinced. This was Kendra, right? (laughs) Yeah, Kendra. Yeah. 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 We were super convinced. And especially because it's San Luis Obispo. My my sister went to Cal Poly. Oh, she's looking for gum and you think that means like weed or something, right? Yes. A hundred percent. No, as far as I know, Kendra was looking for gum. So uh, this is a question we need to ask Kendra. Kendra will I, help us get to the source of this Kendra, issue. Kendra, the aptly named Kendra Coed, which is like, yeah, like a name out of, you her know. Her name is Kendra That's her real name? Kendra Coed, K-O-E-D, yes. Wow. Yeah, like. Wow. That sounds like a, that sounds like a, a fake character. It, that's it unbelievable. Sounds like, a, sounds like a character out of a novel. <laughs> but yeah, that's her name. And, you know, what can I say? She was wow. great. She was very helpful. But no, she was looking for gum. Okay. You know, but again, like today, you go to a party and you say, you know, anybody got a stick of gum, and this guy who is kind of creeping on every woman that comes by goes, "Well, I got to in my car." Yeah, yeah, no. you're, you're not going out there. Come on. That's why we also assumed it wasn't gum because she right. went out to the car and it was like, well, but it well, was a different time, I think. And well, it was a different was time young. in that in that there was just I mean, look, it still happened. I mean, when did Adam Walsh disappear? That was a long time before 1996. So, I mean, terrible things were happening in places that weren't supposed to happen in which, you know, parents and families were, you know, horrifically affected by it. So, I mean, it wasn't like 1996 was the beginning of bad things happening, but I hope that one of the things that sort of emerges writ large from the Kristen Smart case is, you know, I think there's a perception that college campuses, particularly sort of, you know, idyllic ones like Cal Poly SLO are safe places. And I think college campuses are actually some of the least safe places. They are generally open to the public, like pretty much anybody mm-hmm. can walk onto the campus anytime they want. Mm-hmm. No one's required to wear ID and they are populated by huge groups of young people who like Kristen are sort of just figuring out about the world. And in some cases they're going to be more trusting and maybe easier to trick or to fool. And there's no real police force there to protect you. We saw that. I mean, yeah. you know, if yeah. I pick up the phone right now and say, my daughter is missing, they will come right here to my house. Mm-hmm. They certainly, even if they don't come to my house, they will probably take it seriously. You mm-hmm. pick up the phone, call the campus police. They're going to be, well, give it some time. She'll be back. And they're She's not out camping. And in most cases, they're just not real police agencies. And one of the things that the smart right. family did early on was get this law passed or help get this law passed in California that requires local, that requires colleges to have a plan to hand off serious criminal matters to an actual local police force. And they want to see that expanded to the nation at large. And I think that's actually a great idea because look what happened at the university of Utah with Lauren McCluskey. I mean, there's another Mm -hmm. perfect example of a 
college police department that did not take a criminal case seriously enough with disastrous results. Now, in this case, I tend to think that the missteps very well chronicled of the Cal Poly SLO police, I don't know that that would have prevented Kristen Smart's death, but it Mm -hmm. certainly would have prevented a lot of other women from being raped. Absolutely. Right. And another thing that was interesting to show how time had passed was back then it was he kissed forcibly kissed girls at parties and that was sort of just that's what guys do at parties and now we know that's sexual assault you can't do that and there's probably a greater chance now that somebody would report that to campus police now here's the thing you know he had these nicknames of Creepy Paul or Scary Paul or Chester the Molester. And some of that appears to have you know, been in his past as far back as high school. Chris Lambert knows more about this than I do. But Chris Lambert knows more about everything in this case than I do. But, <laughs> he's an encyclopedia, yeah, right? he's great. He's yeah. great. But there's a question as to how much, you know, how much campus police knew about him. Again, they didn't want to talk to us. And, of course, those people who were actually there at the time. They don't work there Are anymore. Are gone now. Right, because yeah. it's been so long. But, you know, were they aware of Paul Flores? Were Did women come to campus police and say, this guy did not assault me, this guy did not rape me, but this guy did show up. He climbed up onto my balcony, you know, or he showed up at my door at one in the morning or whatever. I mean, there are questions as to how much campus police knew about Paul Flores before Kristen was attacked. And, you know, what did they know? When did they know it? What could they have done? You know, options were open to the police and to the university, which also didn't really want to sit down and talk with us. And their answer to the whole thing was dangerous, terrible things do happen in safe places and they happen all the time. And, uh, you know, we all need to be, you know, we all need to be mindful of our safety. And it happened under a different regime. And yes. some of that is true. And you're right that today a guy who was forcibly kissing other students might be dealt with differently than Paul Flores was. But what would happen with that today? I mean, what would happen if somebody were reported to a campus police department saying that he was not raping women, but that he was walking up to them and forcibly kissing them and trying to get them to have too much to drink and scaring them. What would happen? Would they ban him from the campus? I don't know. I don't know what they'd do. I would like to say that I'm sure that any college would deal with that in a way that protected its female students, but I don't have enough confidence to say that that would happen. Yeah. They seem more interested in protecting their reputation. Well, in this case, they definitely did. Yes. And Cal Poly was definitely aware that there were rapes happening on campus because my sister was a freshman at Cal Poly the year Kristen Smart was also a freshman. She was there with her. And she said that there were red handprints all over the campus. And those were to represent places where women had been assaulted on campus during this time. So there was an awareness for sure. Katie, it would have been helpful to know this about four months ago. Sorry, I just found out. She had some good info. I'll hook you up with her next time. But like, but she said, and she also remembers that she doesn't remember campus police being a presence at all. She said, really, as a freshman, sort of who you think you're going to all the time is your resident advisor, your RA of your dorm, because everybody's in dorms. And I know, and they talked to the resident advisor, the girls in her hall did. And then so does the resident advisor know to go to the campus police? And what, and and also what does, and what kind of attention 
is that person paid by campus police? Is that 100%. Just like, is that just yeah. another annoying student coming in whining about something or do they think to themselves, okay, this is like a real thing that we have to deal with? And the answer is we don't know. And as to you not telling me about the red hand, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. Let me just say to all our podcast listeners right now, I am <laughs> massaging the bridge of my nose. Okay. <laughs> this job is difficult enough without your friends making it harder. Katie, I'm so glad I'm not on the receiving. Maybe end. she remembered wrong. I'm going to blame her. I didn't her. do anything wrong. I shouldn't have said anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Let's go on to Chris Lambert. Is he as much of a, did we call him a mensch? Kimberly, what I do we call him a mensch? Yeah. yeah. Is he, explain him. Is he delightful or what? Yeah. I mean, he's a, the world would be better if there were more Chris Lambert's in it. I mean, that's what we said. You know, the thing you've got to remember is that, you know, he's just a local guy who drove by that billboard and he's not a journalist. Although I think he's kind of heading in that direction, whether he Mm -hmm. likes it or not. And I mean, he certainly enjoyed some journalistic protections during the trial when they tried to call him. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one of the defense arguments was that he had sort of whipped up this investigation and this fervor against Paul Flores. And the judge, I think, did quash the subpoena because they said he was a journalist. So he certainly didn't begin as a journalist. And he wasn't a friend of the Smart family, didn't know them at all. And he never investigated any crime. He was a musician, and but he, you know, just thought, well, that's I, I keep seeing that billboard, I keep seeing that girl, and I'm gonna see what I can find out about it. And the more he started digging, he started cold calling everybody who knew anything about the case, and people started talking, and he sort of started learning that there was more to this than most people knew. Mm-hmm. And then he started doing this podcast, but he didn't want to do it unless the Smart family told him it was okay. He's very respectful. Mm-hmm. Of them mm-hmm. and sort of like us. I mean, if the family doesn't want to cooperate with any particular Dateline story, I'm not saying that they're going to get veto power and we won't do it, but it's hard to do without family cooperation. We don't, mm-hmm. they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. So yeah. he met with Denise and they got along and they're all very close now, the smarts. And uh, it seems like they are. In and, the, and you know, yeah. the thing about Chris is that not only was he extremely thorough and careful you know Mm -hmm. i mean a lot of podcasts as you know are kind of hyperbolic and make charges that can't really be sustained sure and sometimes can end up getting in the way of a police or sheriff's investigation Mm -hmm. chris kind of the opposite of that because you know he sort of you know at different times you can hear him giving Flores and the Flores family sort of the benefit of every doubt and he says things like now we don't know what Paul Flores would say about this because he's not right. talking to us i don't know whether he would say that he was there at the time or he wasn't there or he doesn't remember this or that this never happened we don't know i, I thought that was very helpful and i thought his sort of careful unhurried manner it, it really his affect on the podcast, I thought was like just right because it really drew you in. And by the time it was over, you really felt like you understood what was going on here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it, it the amazing thing was it really, that podcast, Your Own Backyard, it sort of won the approval of both the family and law enforcement. Have you seen that before, this kind of cooperation? I can't. I know of stories, and we've tried to cover them, and in one case it didn't work out for a couple of reasons, but it didn't have anything to do with anything. Occasionally, podcasts, you know, because there's so many podcasts on there about, a lot of them are about true crime. Sometimes those do figure in stories, mm-hmm. but much more common 
is podcasters saying, I've learned this about the crime, or I've learned that about the crime, or I've found some information police didn't know about, or I've something that they really want to know. And police really just want them to shut up and go away and leave them alone. And sometimes, you know, people who are amateur sleuths, there was a big article in New York Times or Washington Post within the last week about sort of the damage that Mm -hmm. amateur sleuths can do to third parties, like in Idaho, you know, the accusing someone that's wrong, accusing somebody who had nothing to do with it. Oh yeah. The roommate that people are just being horrible. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And there was, and it was talked about that camera was either the times or the post I put on my Twitter feed. And there are more cases I think of podcasts kind of getting in the way of investigations than there are of podcasts Mm -hmm. really helping them. But in this case, man, this was, I mean, I mean, for Chris, this was just a home run because the sheriff's department trusted him and listened to him and the family trusted him and listened to him. And people who had information like called him, people who probably mm-hmm. otherwise would never have come to the attention of law enforcement. So mm-hmm. I think Chris did an invaluable service here. Do you think that he was like a pipeline? So the way that it, I'm imagining it in my head is that if someone wasn't comfortable going to the police, they'd talk to him and then he might like nicely suggest to them, hey, I really think you need to talk to yes. Detective So-and-so. Yes, Is that's that kind how, of how that works. Yes. And, you know, I mean, you know, Clint Cole, the detective, uh, the cold case detective who worked yeah. on this for the sheriff's department and who retired right after sentencing. Oh, really? Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, this was like his last case. He made tremendous progress on his own. I don't want to make it sound like the sheriff's department was spoon-fed this investigation by Chris Lambert because they were not. Mm-hmm. But it was sort of a you know, Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside thing here, because, you know, Cole could go along some channels and Lambert could go on others. And sometimes they would end up at the same place, but they did share information. And the sheriff's department, I think, trusted Chris not to do an episode saying, here's what I've just learned from the sheriff's department. They're going to arrest so-and-so next Thursday. You want to make sure that they're not going to blurt out stuff like that. And, you know, they also, you know, listen to him when he would tell them, who they might talk to or what he had learned or, and I think it ended up being good for everybody here. Oh yeah, absolutely. And as a reporter, you know, which Chris, I would think, I think would say he's not, but I'm going to include him in that for this, you know, you don't want to be seen as an agent of law enforcement. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, we work with cops all the time, all over the country, but I'm not one. And I don't work for any department and I'm not sharing my notes with them. We are covering them the way we are covering, you know, any other part of the story. But it is a good idea if when you're working on a story that is developing as you are covering it, which is what happened with Kristen Smart, that you have a relationship with law enforcement in which they trust you and you trust them. And that's something that Chris Lambert was clearly able to forge. Yeah. Attention, cat lovers. Seriously, you know, the only reason that I would ever interrupt Josh Mankiewicz is to talk about my cats. I think that's the only reason on the planet that I have Mm -hmm. for interrupting Josh. But this is really, really important. If you're a cat lover, cat owner, or friend or family to a cat lover, cat owner, you're going to love the offerings from Mao. That's M-A-U. Mao is revolutionizing the cat furniture space, and you'll understand what I mean as soon as you check them out. I didn't think it was possible for cat furniture to ever fit into my house decor, let alone improve it and be a talking piece. But my Sento cat tree is so pretty to look at. It's like a sculpture with fluffy cloud beds. 
I love it. It's also loved by my cats. They, they are now taking turns on who gets the top bed. Right now, it's Ulysses because, of course, it's Ulysses. Yeah. It, it would make sense. That's right. Mao cat trees come with easy-to-clean fabrics and machine-washable cushions. So if you have a kitty that tracks dirt, you know how important it is to have machine-washable cushions. They have handcrafted natural wooden branches that are sustainably sourced from pear trees that no longer bear fruit. They just are made with incredibly high-quality materials. And plus, all their wear and tear parts are replaceable, so the tree can last for years. Also, they're very sturdy. They are capable of handling large-sized cats. <laughs> the Sento tree that I have can handle up to 23 pounds, which is helpful as I have a large cat sitting next to me right now who's literally snoring. Go get on the tree, Bruce. You can filter the products on Mao's website by your cat's weight using the filter on their collection pages. And we love a company with a cause at a date with Dateline. One tree is planted for every product purchased from Mao, and 5% of proceeds are donated to animal welfare and environmental conservation. Also, all products are backed by a 45-day risk-free trial and a one-year warranty from Mao. I am in awe of the stunning products from Mao and their Mao-vous <laughs> products for your home and your furry friends. So head to maopets.com slash dateline right now for 5% off your first purchase. That's maopets, M-A-U, pets.com slash dateline for 5% off. Be the proud owner of cat furniture that's simply marvelous. I am positive. You and your kitty are going to love it. Thank you, Mao. Thanks, Mao. Katie, I'm going to tell you about a new series, a special, okay. a special series. All right. On a cold night in 2010, a boy is stopped by the police while walking home from a party in the Bronx. He was only 16 years old. He's been stopped before by the police, but this time is different. It changes everything. Oh. This is a special four-part series from Generation Y. The podcast that they are the OGs of podcasting. I remember when we first went to Crime Con and I was like, oh, Generation Y is here. True. And they had the biggest booth because they earned it. They did. Period. They are unraveling the story of Khalif Browder, a young boy who was falsely accused of stealing a backpack and held without bail at Rikers Island for three years. Whoa. He suffered abuse there by the staff and the inmates. He was in solitary confinement for more than 700 consecutive days, Whoa. which is torturous. No. And then three years later, they just released him, having never stood trial. What? Like, pat on the back? Thank Bye. Bye. Good luck for, out there. Thanks for staying at our island. Wow. I hope you had a nice island visit. Mm. What? No. This is a story that digs into the injustice of the justice system, a young life caught in the middle. We say innocent until proven guilty, but where do we draw the line between due process and cruelty? Right. This sounds like cruelty. This is what Lara Bricker from Crime Writers On calls rage walking material. This is yes. like when I get my social justice headphones on mm -hmm. and I do some rage walking around my neighborhood. Absolutely. This and, is I, and I go online and when I get back and I sign every petition I can find. There we go. To hear this four part series, follow Generation Y, which is why. Like, why? Why haven't you heard of Generation Y? 
W-H-Y. Why? So if you're not subscribed, this question is for you. Generation, why aren't you already following them? There we go. Go listen wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app or the Wondery app. Thank you, Wondery. Thanks, Generation Y. Check it out, folks. Back to Josh. Kristen, one of our patrons said, I've listened to Your Own Backyard several times. It's so good. And I'm still baffled as to why Ruben wasn't found guilty. Does Mank have any insight? First of all, despite the fact that he maybe shouldn't have asked me that question about why I think Kristen Smart is dead, I think that Ruben's (laughs) attorney did a very good job. You know, juries have been sort of pre-programmed over the last 20 years, let's say, to expect that the DNA is going to be available in every case. You hear prosecutors talk about something they call the CSI effect, which stems from the CSI TV show, and the belief that there's always DNA. It can be analyzed in, you know, 30 seconds on a via machine on your desk. There is facial recognition software that you can put a videotape in of somebody some blurry video first of all you can enhance that so you can see the person perfectly and read their license plate no and you know and then they'll also tell you who that person is and what their arrest record is and that'll all happen in a couple of seconds and that doesn't exist sometimes there isn't dna in this case there wasn't dna i think if the jury had been i think if the jury had been shown Kristen smart's dna from under uh, ruben flores's deck i suspect there's a much better chance that he would have been convicted but they couldn't. Uh, you know, prosecutors say this all the time. When juries start thinking about what's likely, you get convictions. When they start thinking about what's possible, you get acquittals. The question that the prosecution needed to put in the juror's mind is, you know, somebody was buried under Ruben Flores' deck. And if it wasn't Kristen Smart, well, then who was it? But I thought the defense did a good job of fighting that off. And I also think Ruben Flores is is not a young man, and I think right. in court he looked either deliberately or by happenstance older than he even is. I think that might have had something to do with it too. Then the two, sorry, they were tried together, so it's two. They were tried two juries. They were tried in the same courtroom by separate juries. So Ruben had his own jury, and Paul had his own jury. It was very cumbersome, but it worked. How does that work? Does that often happen? No, it does not happen. Usually defendants, if they're tried together, they're tried by the same jury. Or if they're tried separately, they're tried by in separate trials. But in this case, same trial. Why did they do that? Why? Because that feels like... I do not know. I do not know. A lawyer wrote me and said, sometimes they'll do it if the prosecution wants info to come out, but they don't. They can't get it in, but they can get it in for the other person's part of the trial. So they can want the jury to hear about it. Okay. I mean, I do know that admissibility of evidence here was a big issue because, yeah. you know, women that women who allege that Paul Flores raped them, drugged them and raped them, testified at that trial anonymously. Mm-hmm. But he mm-hmm. was not charged with those, right? They brought that in as evidence of a pattern of behavior mm-hmm. because the claim was that Paul Flores killed Kristen Smart during the commission of a rape, either by physically killing her or by uh, that she had a bad reaction to some drug that he gave her to knock her out. And one of the things that's happened over time is that I get the sense, and I got the sense sort of from the Smart family too, that the scenario of her being drugged is more and more plausible now that you know about now that we know more about Paul Flores's behavior, because a lot of what's known about him 
and about his hanging out at the bars and approaching women who'd already had a lot to drink at closing time and suggesting that they get together. And then many of them report him giving them a drink or a glass of water. And then they don't remember what happened after that. And a lot of that didn't come out until he was arrested. So sort of in the last year to year and a half since he was locked up, the theory that that he didn't just stalk her because she had too much to drink and then try to have drunken sex with her. Mm -hmm. That clearly was the thinking for a while. And then after he was arrested, I think the theory that he may have given her a drug because date rape drugs certainly existed in the mid nineties. That's what my sister Uh, said. (laughs) Yeah. Again, thanks so much. Did you bring that up, Katie? Wow. I think that theory has become more plausible for a lot of people, but of course, without Kristen Smart, we're not going to know. And now after all this time has passed, I don't even know that the remains of Kristen Smart would give us the answer to that question, even if they found her this afternoon. Even Mm -hmm. if they, sorry, I did have one question. You don't go into it in this episode, but I'm wondering, there's a, Is there some sort of something that we missed here where he obviously had to move Kristen's body out of his dorm room? Is there a thought that Ruben helped in that? Did they prosecute for that, that Ruben had actually helped him initially after the The charge was accessory after the fact, which I think involves, you know, any of a number of things. It's more than just hiding the body under his deck. I mean, it would have been other. It would have been other things too. Okay. The family and police and prosecutors have all believed for a long time that Paul Flores killed Kristen in his dorm room. In his dorm. And then Mm -hmm. somehow got the body out of there. And that he wouldn't have been able to do that. Remember, she's 5'11". And he's not that he's tall. He's not a huge guy. No. And he was even smaller then. So... Yeah, that's not happening. Yeah. So, you know, he made a call to his parents Dad. the next morning. So that's the question is whether or not he had help. The police and the family and, and prosecutors have all believed from the beginning that Paul had to have help getting Kristen Smart out of his dorm and that his family helped him do it. And, that and then it was the been, family that helped. Yes. Right. And, that, and that they've been part of this sort of ongoing cover up for all these years. That they've, right. They've helped. So they think Susan as well knew right after the fact. Well, one of the things they point to is Susan Flores on a wiretap saying to Paul Flores, you need to listen to the podcast because we need to figure out how to punch holes in it. Only you can do that. She said, mm-hmm. well, if he's innocent, then anybody can do it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, why That's only a- him, right? Yep. He, what does he know that nobody else knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, that literally is like saying, you know, to Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, you need to read the Warren Commission report and tell me what's wrong with it. Only you can do that. Only you right. can do it. Yeah, well, not if you weren't mm-hmm. there. Only you can do that. Yeah. Mm. That was but an interesting. Did, yeah, but I think the belief is that yeah, is that that she knew right away. Well, and not found yes. out years later or was in denial. Well, or was told some story that that might not be true. I there mean, was an knows? accident, right? I'm going to get blamed right. for this, and we need to cover this up because you know I didn't have anything to do with it. Right, but, but I'm going to get blamed for it, and so you have to help me. That's entirely possible. People saw me walking with her. Yeah, here's another thing that's possible. Clint Cole. The cold case investigator who was there when Paul Flores was arrested and who was the last investigator on this case and who bears a huge amount of of credit for bringing this to a close, along with Chris Lambert and others. He believes that Paul Flores got his black eye not from Kristen Smart, who was fighting it. Clint's theory is that Kristen Smart 
had received whatever sedative or drug she had received from Paul Flores. And that's what had laid her out on the front lawn of that house after the party. And then although nobody had seen her drink, she was absolutely like blotto and could barely stand up. And you'd think you would have seen her knocking back shots or something to get that drunk. And nobody reported seeing her drink a lot. So his theory is she was not in any condition to fight back. And the black eye that Paul Flores told a couple of different stories about came from his father. Yeah. This is Clint's theory. That the, That's the, not the, a bad theory. That That's the a theory, pretty good theory. That, that the black eye came from his father, who said essentially to him, wow, son, thanks for putting me in the murder of invest in the middle of a murder mm-hmm. investigation right. and making me an accessory after the fact. Pow. Pow. Mm-hmm. That is Clint's theory. That is a good theory. Yes. It's not shared by the smart family, but it is a theory. Wow. And, and it can't be disproven. Right. When Susan said, we have pictures too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What was that? What is she talking, saying she has pictures of Kristen too, no. or we have our own family pictures? Yeah, of we have our own. Yeah. So you we know. have our own family. We don't need your family's pictures. You know, D- Denise Smart, who has, you know, from the beginning tried to make a sort of connection to Susan Flores, mm. believing that any mom would know what it's like to, to not know where your child is and to fear for their safety. She tried again and again to sort of, you know, uh, get Susan to talk about that. And Susan Flores apparently never did. And even when Denise Smart sent them uh, videos of, uh, you know, Kristen's dance recitals, yeah. you know, and uh, and parties and postcards and some just heartbreaking stuff, going back to when she was a little child, little drawings and things that she'd done as a kid. The Flores family did not respond to any of that. And she and said things like, yes, we have our own photos. We have our own family. You know, there's, I have my own family. You worry about your family. I have my family to worry about. That was her attitude. You know, even at the end, at sentencing, during victims' impact statements, they're told, the smarts, like every family, they're told, make your remarks to the judge who will pronounce sentence, not to the defendant. Now, a lot of families aren't able to do that because they're sitting there facing the person that, that is responsible for this torment that they're going through. Mm-hmm. And so the Smart family, I think some of the people that spoke, spoke to the judge, but Denise Smart definitely spoke to Paul Flores. And what she said, as which we showed, you know, she said, look, you can still, you can still do the right thing here. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still tell us where she is. And Paul Flores didn't even turn around to look at her. He was, he was like a rock. And, uh, and that's sort of, been the attitude of that family from the beginning, yeah. which is they didn't want to hear any of that. They didn't want to hear about the agony anybody else was going through. When Susan was being interviewed by that reporter on the lawn, she kind of said, they've ruined his life, too. Right. And, you know, we're being tor- He's we out victims. there doing okay. his own thing. He's not. Yeah. When you obliterated the defense attorney. Do you know him? Do you know no. that defense attorney? Have no. you met him before? Never. Okay. No. Did he explode into a million little pieces? No, he was, uh, you know, he said, I think, thanks for answering the question. You didn't give him finger guns and winked. Because we thought that you might have done. You just got manked. And then holstered. Uh, That didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing the finger I did not do that. Uh, Did you do it in your head? I I did not. I remember thinking to myself, that was a silly thing to ask. Yeah, really was. Uh, Because he did kind of just 
walking out of like you think he thought you didn't know about the case and you couldn't rattle off all of the good reasons why i mean like like the case against the case against paul flores was circumstantial but it's a pretty strong circumstantial case yes yeah and you know again i you got to remind remind you and everybody else he's not paul's attorney that may right. be one Rubens. reason. Yeah, that may be one so reason why did he did Paul's that. attorney did not want to speak did to Did not want to speak to us, no. So, I mean, yeah. you know, that was not Paul's attorney I was speaking to, although he did definitely um, uh, defend Paul in our conversation, but he did not defend Paul in court. He defended Ruben, and he, I think he did a good job. Well, yeah, he got him off. He yeah. must have. My guess is he's going to get some extra business out of that. He got a high-profile defendant off on a high-profile case, and it's not as if there was no evidence against him. I mean, I understand there was, you know, there was not DNA, but he did everything from dispute the efficacy of the blood test that the prosecutors used to claiming that it could have been ferrets buried under the house. I mean, he rolled out a lot of arguments, and I don't know what worked with the jury or whether it was just the absence of actual DNA, but... He got an acquittal. He's the only person in this case who got an acquittal. And it's a surprising acquittal just because you would think that because of sort of the the horribleness, I mean, all murders, all crimes are horrible, but the just, it's pretty, it's a young girl. There's a lot happening here. And Paul has this horrendous track record of this kind of assault. And so you're thinking that the the more likely is if you're going to convict Paul, then it it would be easy to also just throw in Ruben. Clean sweep. Yeah. Clean sweep because this was a horrible thing that's happened to this family. That may be the way prosecutors thought, but that wasn't the way the jury saw it. Yeah. Or they just didn't believe that that was human blood. Or they didn't believe it. I mean, they had some reasonable doubt, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's what happens. I mean, when you get jury, when you get jurors thinking about what's possible, you get acquittals. You know, mm-hmm. is it possible those were ferrets under there? I mean, to me, I, I don't see and that. And he but... told the guy who had lived there for 10 years, ferrets. do not ever go near right. he kept that people under a... the porch. Oh, he, kept, don't... he kept a plumber away from there. I mean, like all of that is circumstantial, but it's not nothing. Yeah, it's but, not nothing. But jury clearly had reasonable doubt on Ruben Ferrets. Yeah. Um, I have to apologize because I did ask you on Twitter, there was a guy they kept showing in B-roll walking out of Paul's house with a cooler. And it was shown in the B-roll of the doing searches of his house. And I thought it was a guy that worked for the team and was carrying out, well, Katie thought taking crab legs that were left over in the fridge because he was like, Paul's not using them. And I thought that was a good theory. But somebody pointed out they think that was actually Paul footage of Paul carrying out a cooler oh. from his own house and going into this vintage car. Oh, that was, yes. That, I, I know what shot you're talking about. Yeah, that is Paul. So Flores. it was yeah. Paul. Yes, what, Paul and Flores, so now yeah. I'm or even more creeped out about what was in that cooler. Probably. Because it's Paul. He got a lot of DUIs. Could have been beer. That's true. He did hang out at the bar all the time. Yeah. DUIs. Yeah. It, look, and is there any way, I feel like this might be a law question, but is there any way that Paul could be offered, I don't know, a window in order to give up? Like, if he's going to be in prison forever for the rest of his life, is there any sort of deal that can be made for him to actually give up the remains? Or is he just never, does he have any sort of reason 
to stick I mean, to this not, innocent thing. But he didn't a, even get life, or did he get 25 to life? He got 50 to life, I think, or 25 to life. Yeah. 25 to life, yeah. yeah, and they're not charging him for those rapes, so I don't think he'll get out. I think that he, I mean, he's, what, 46? 46, yeah. 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 I mean, I think if he ever did get parole, which is not something, I, not something I'd want to gamble on, yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be a long mm-hmm. time. I suppose, you know, I mean, look, you can make a deal with anybody. I mean, they're not going to let him out. What kind of facility it is might change. Um, Might be some privileges that you could bargain with. But, I mean, he's going to want to do it. That's the thing. And And he won't do that until his appeals are done. And I'm assuming he's going to appeal. I don't see any any interest in that. I mean, I just, on on his end, I, I don't. Could it happen? I guess. I mean, I think a, I think a bigger avenue is going to be law enforcement finding her um, without uh, without his help, because uh, the belief is that she was there um, until the first search warrant was served, and then at the other in, house, in, in and between, then she was right. in between the two in at Ruben's house, and in between the two search warrants, she was moved. Just moved. Which means that she was not, that wherever she was taken was, you know, if you believe that theory, that wherever she was taken was, you know, something that would be more hastily planned, not Mm -hmm. something that they would have had. So it's not a hiding place that's been Mm -hmm. been available for 25 years. It's going to be some other place. One of our listeners said, could they track their cell phones or cars to show where they drove at that time, if they drove out to the middle of nowhere. I think that's been done. I asked about that, and the answer is no, because those cell phone towers, are not a big enough area, like you're going to be on the same cell phone tower for some of that. Yeah, where they are. Okay. They, I think they did look on traffic cameras and that kind of thing and didn't find anything. Do you? Did you find this story of the woman at the skateboard park credible? Um, and maybe he told her he confessed, but he lied about where he put her. Um, is this Jennifer? Is that her name? Jennifer Hudson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gen- uh, Jennifer Hudson. How could I forget? Yeah. yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was credible. I mean, she didn't tell anyone at the time. I think she says because she was frightened of Paul Flores and also because she thought it wouldn't do any good. And I got to say, given the sort of, you know, apparent indifference of the police agency investigating at the beginning, she's probably right. It might not have done any good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I don't know that Kristen was ever in the place where she claims Paul Flores said she was. I mean, the theory of prosecutors and police is that he's confessing to the crime, but he's lying about where she is because, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's going to keep that. He's going to keep that a secret. But it's a uh, it's a story that rings true, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this is, as far as we know, Paul Flores is only murder, correct? As far as we know. Interesting. As far as we know. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, the theory of law enforcement is that this wasn't supposed to be a murder; that it was just a it was a rape, and she mm-hmm. died either because they had a fight and it yeah. went sideways, and he ended up, you know, killing her, or that she had some kind of reaction to to the drugs. Drug. Yeah, I mean, we don't know, and that he then refined his act as he sort of got older and moved to Southern California and and began raping women and not killing them. Wow. 
And the LAPD is not moving forward with any of those cases because they feel like he's already in jail. The LA and to County save money. The LA the LAPD is, at my understanding, ready to move forward. It is the LA County District Attorney's Office. Gotcha. That is not ready to move forward. Gotcha. All right. There's at least one case that I think the LAPD believes is prosecutable here in Los Angeles. And you know, they found those drives in Paul Flores's home, and those drives right. were of women of Paul Flores having uh, videotaping himself, having sex with women who were clearly not in any condition to give consent. Um, I mean, they were semi-conscious or in some cases completely unconscious. And obviously, you know, he's not saying on the tape, you know, this is Jane Smith and it's October 8th, you know, 1999, right? right? I mean, he's, and in some cases there were timestamps on them, but there were a couple of different timestamps. Obviously no one says their name. Uh, they, they had a lot of trouble identifying anybody. And in a couple of cases that the LAPD found women who they believed were the women in the tape. And they said either, I remember him, but I don't remember anything else, which is either uh, which is consistent either with date rape or just blocking out an unpleasant experience uh-huh. or that they just don't remember. Uh, one woman said to them, you know, I was doing that a lot back then and I don't want to relive that. I don't, mm. you know, oh, um, I, yeah. you know I, I don't really remember it. Uh, some just did not want to talk about it. And some women came forward after he was arrested, uh, read about it and came forward. That were actually in the tapes? No, not that were in the tapes, but other women who came mm-hmm. forward. No, the, the women who were in the tapes, I believe, either are in some cases not identified and in others uh, possibly identified, but didn't didn't either either didn't have anything to offer or wouldn't have been good witnesses because they, by their own admission, they would say, I don't remember what happened. But the women oh, who did testify, cool. they had stories to tell. Oh, and I'm sure it was incredibly damaging. I mean, if he needed anything else. Oh, yeah. I think that helped the prosecution's case. You know, the other thing is that, you know, although those tapes were not played for the jury, the judge did see them. And so it's possible that uh, uh, that might have impacted the sentencing in some way. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, that was a great job on that episode. Incredible. Thank you. Anne Priceman is the producer of that. Wonderful job. And she did a wonderful job. Especially doing it in a rush. You couldn't tell. Allison Orr was the senior producer and a cast of thousands at Dateline. I mean, look, I've said this before. The big stars of Dateline are the people you do not see on TV. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and that's why this works is because of the team we have behind the camera and and operating the camera in some cases. Mm-hmm. Wow. Dina wants to know what kind of preparation do you do prior to interviewing people? Do you have a thorough understanding of the case or does the interview kind of inform you about I mean, you have to pretend like you're getting the information for the first time, no. but you've are. No, I do not. You no. you don't no. know what they're going to say. Well, you know, now you're you're now we're we're talking about something interesting here. Um, uh, first of all, I do have a good understanding of all the cases before I sit down and do an interview. Clearly, want, from way the way you rattled it off to the defense attorney. Well, yeah, and you also right for, for that reason, but also I mean, you want to know whether what somebody's saying makes sense or not, so you can challenge mm-hmm. them on it. You know. I'm not pretending I'm hearing the information for the first time. I'm the storyteller, not the audience. You know, when someone says, and Kristen Smart was never seen again, I'm like, what do you mean? Never again? That was it? <laughs> well, but I mean, she came home, right? You know yes. the story. That's the idea. Yeah. You know yeah. the story. You're telling yeah, you're the audience. The show. Mm-hmm. Right. You're telling the audience about it. 
But you do want to interject at different points and say, well, wait a minute, that's it. They question him and then they just let him go. And that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. So that's the, you need to ask the questions that the audience would want to be asking. Yes. Yeah. But you also want to ask questions that the audience wouldn't think to ask because you want to know more about the case than anybody watching, or at least more than nearly anybody watching. Not mm -hmm. that maybe not the defense attorneys or the Chris Lamberts of the world, but you want to know more than the audience generally would know because you're sort of guiding people. If you're the correspondent on a daily, so you're kind of guiding people through the, through the story. Here's what's important. Here's what's not important. Here's what you don't see coming, you know, and by mm -hmm. the way, you know, then they had search dogs and all the search dogs went right to his room. That's something I learned while I was researching the story, which was that I knew that they had used search dogs and that, and that they had led police to his room. I didn't realize that four different dogs in a dormitory with more than a hundred rooms had all four separately found the set of human decomposition in Paul Flores's now cleaned room. That's the mm -hmm. other thing. He was unbelievably lucky because if this had not happened at the end of the term, even with the delay that, that was caused by campus police by being so campus. slow off the ball here, mm -hmm. His room wouldn't have been cleaned, and that would have been a crime scene, and they might have mm -hmm. found something. I mean, it's just unbelievably bad luck that the dorm had been cleaned by the time anybody came in to do any evidence recovery. So, yes, yes, the answer to Dina is, yes, I want to know as much about the case as possible. I read a lot of articles about it, and uh, sometimes talk to people who know about the case, people involved in the, in the case. But then also when you're doing the interview – you're not just reading a list of a hundred questions. Like you're listening to what people are saying. And sometimes what they say is an educational process. And it'll take you off in some direction that you weren't expecting, which is good. Mm -hmm. Matthew Kirk, for example, you for would not example. have known. <laughs> right. I had no idea that Matthew Kirk was going to be like he was. I did not. Wonderful. I love it. Jennifer says, first of all, I want to thank him for being so kind and respectful to the women he interviews, especially when it comes to more sensitive topics. We consider you a champion of women. We always and many that. others agreed with that. And one also added that you're also a very good looking guy. Which wow. I'm like compelled to throw in wow. there. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, that gets Katie off the hook, maybe. <laughs> Partly. Well, thank give you. More, give more. Give yeah. more compliments. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's that's very nice to hear about being kind to people that we interview. Look, these people that we're sitting across from, whether they are families or you know the victim or friends of the victim, they're agreeing to let us interview them about the worst thing that ever happened to them in mm -hmm. almost all cases. Mm -hmm. And you know, Keith always says that that is an awesome responsibility, and he's right. It is. Yeah. And, and it's one that we must not take lightly. Yeah. And the difficult thing, and I think I'm pretty sure I've spoken to the two of you about this before, is you've got to find some sort of emotional middle ground. Because when people start crying, you're the interviewer. You're not supposed to start crying. You're also not supposed to say, hey, come on, let's go. Snap out of right. it. Right? I mean, right. like you got to find something, some place in between. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's going to vary with each person that you talk to. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes. It's sympathetic you know, listening. Yeah. You know, but usually, you know, if people are upset, I ask them if they want to stop. We've got a lot of, you know, memory space on the cards and the camera. We don't have mm -hmm. to. Take your time. Yeah. We can wait for you to be ready to talk because this is not about getting people to cry on camera or to be upset. Right. Like, I, right. I, want, I want to hear people tell their story mm -hmm. and, uh, and I want them to feel good about it afterwards. Yeah. I'd love to get your opinion on Vestgate, which is... <laughs> I think you know my feelings. 
I, I think I think that damaging it's I been to my mental health. Your feelings. I uh, can't be on social media because of your feelings. On that, Lester has started wearing a hanky and has lost the vest. Yeah, the uh, vest gate. You can plead the fifth. I'll be abundantly clear. I don't have any oh, control okay. over how Lester Holt dresses. <laughs> okay, and I also do not believe that he is thinking of me when he dresses or changes the way he dresses. or me. No, I think there's a very good chance he's thinking about you, uh, <laughs> but he's not thinking about me. So your feeling is that what? That Lester has, because is, now is we passive aggressively coming for you by wearing a pocket square and well, removing his vest. He used to just wear his shirt and tie and vest, but not his jacket, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now more recently, he's been wearing a jacket, no tie and a pocket mm-hmm. square. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the way one of the uh-huh. people on this podcast does it. Uh-huh. Right. And I would like to believe that Lester is thought to himself, wow, Josh looks great. I should emulate that. It's an homage. Yeah, I think that's be. possible, but it's not likely. Ever since I've known Lester, which goes back to 1986 when we worked together in New York. Wow. Yeah, we go back a long ways. He was always a really good dresser. And a very stylish yep. guy. So I suspect it's really nothing more than that. Have you ever thought of wearing a vest to get back at him? To get back at him? No, I have not. I have <laughs> not. Or I have not thought about. Yes, I, I have no desire to get back at Lester for anything. If he's also a stylish guy, always been, it means you, you've been ahead of the curve. Because mm-hmm. he's now catching up. Well, to, oh, it's definitely well, about the jacket and the square. Uh well, I do think he looks Icon. good. That, I do think he looks good that way. I do. He looks good always. I don't like him when he takes the glasses off. I feel like he the glasses are make the man in his case. Now, wow. um, if that's just a lot personal of opinion on people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this podcast. <laughs> if you watch the movie The Fugitive with mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Harrison Ford, which first of all is a fabulous, we quote it. A lot. Fabulous. Uh, every outhouse, outhouse yeah, chicken house, 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 pancake house, yeah, yeah. dog house. I, yeah. I want a hard target search of every. That's, yeah. That's the one. There is, and not everybody remembers this. There is at the end when there's stuff going on at that hotel, when Harrison Ford and the doctor who framed him are fighting it out, his former mm-hmm. friend. Their, you know, police are called and their local stations are there and a bunch of reporters are outside. And one of them is Lester Holt, <gasps> very clearly. And, oh, my gosh. And he's got this mustache that he used to have that he wore in New York. And also, I think, obviously, when he was in Chicago, because when that movie was made, which was in Chicago, it was set in Chicago, he was an anchor at the CBS station in Chicago. He was the anchor, the main guy. So I think he was he and a couple of other reporters from WBBM are in that movie. Okay. You can see wow. you can see Pam Zeckman and you can see John Drummond and you can see Lester. Lester yeah. That's incredible. But Lester yeah, but with a, mustache. There's all I think in a trench coat. He looks very dashing. Oh my gosh. Oh. There's a lot of Lester in the fugitive. Okay, I'm I'm ready. Sorry, have you also ever had a mink stash? Mustache? Yeah, have you done a facial hair ever? No, I uh in 2000 um, we were off the air for a while because of the Olympics. I was just going to say the Olympics. It's always the freaking Olympics. And then like right after the baseball playoffs. So we oh. were off for like. Sports. We were off for 
two good weeks for the Olympics and then another 10 days to two weeks for baseball playoffs. And so I grew a beard during that time. But, you know, in TV, one of the things that's in all our contracts is that you're, or at least certainly used to be, that you're not allowed to materially change your look. For a long time, I don't know if this is still true, but there was a, a clause in nearly everybody's contract on TV that they could get out of it if you became disfigured in some way. You know, like if you get some like giant scar on your face or something because you're in an accident or something. Wow. That they didn't have to put you on the air anymore. In other words, if you look, you know, different from the person that they hired. I don't know if that would stand up in court, and I don't know that it's still in the contracts, but it definitely did used to be for a really long time. And so the the rule sort of always was, whether it was the the black letter law rule or whether it was just sort of uh, understood was that, you know, your bosses get to control how you look. So, you know, like, you know, don't right. go shaving your head without talking to anybody, you know, you, right. don't, you know, don't, don't dye your hair bright blonde or something or pink mm -hmm. without it's the horror. Know, yeah. Without yeah. talking mm -hmm. to somebody, you know, in the C-suite in the higher ups. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't even try and appear on the air with the beard. And is there it, photographic evidence of it? Yes, there are a couple of photographs. It made me look older. It came in salt and pepper, and this was 23 years ago, so now it would probably be wow. more salt, less pepper. I liked it. I, I thought it was interesting, but I did not think to myself, I'm going to stick with it. I shaved, and that was that. Because then you would have had to keep the beard. If they did like the beard, you would have had to probably have it for a decade before it's like, okay, you can change the look again. When my be, brother you know. joined Turner Classic Movies back mm -hmm. in 2001, 2002, something like that, he had a goatee. And, you know, they hired him to be like the weekend host, and they wanted him to be like a little different from the, the regular weekday host. And so the, the, his maintaining, his growing and wearing and maintaining a goatee was in his contract. Wow. They wanted that, and that it was in there. That brings me to a question from Julie you know how Turner Classic Movies has a wine club and Turner Classic Movie Cruises for super fans. She would totally be down for a TCM Dateline collab featuring Mank and Lil Mank, Ben. Um, and yeah. we could all watch Citizen Kane and Dateline and drink with the Mank. And then Katie, another Katie coined it, drinks with the Manks. Oh, nice. I like that. Um on a yeah. boat, though? Yeah, and, then we, could all, okay. and then we could all wander dangerously close to the <laughs> rail, right? Yes. And become a, a lot of us aren't coming back. Right, become a Dateline story of our own, yeah. Yeah, well, a Dateline wine club has definitely been proposed before, uh, I mm -hmm. would say, by others. And the Dateline cruise has been proposed before by others. Mm -hmm. I would uh, I would be fine with that. I love it. How fine Keith would be, I don't know, but, but <laughs> I would be fine with that. How many boats have you, how many Boat episodes have you done that's like oh, on the water? Man. A, a bunch, right? Yeah. Yeah. I did a, uh, back before crime, I did a story about a guy who fell off an aircraft carrier, a Marine, mm -hmm. and floated around the water for like three days. Should have died, but did not. Didn't uh, die? No, and his wow. name was his name was Zach Mayo, which is the same name as the Richard Gere character and an officer and a gentleman, which was What? Oh, that's weird. bizarre. Yeah, right? Like, really, Yeah. That feels weird. So that was a, a boat story. I just did a story recently about uh, Mickey Kanasaki during pandemic. Her longtime boyfriend yes. convinced her to go on a cruise. To Yes, I remember and that. And then he threw her overboard. And, and she was found. Otherwise, if she hadn't been found, he probably would have gotten away with it. 
That was crazy. Yeah. I feel like we could do a summer of sailing and just do episodes that take place on. Yeah, but on we've boats. done we've done a lot of on boats. Mm-hmm. It just... gives me pause. And uh, Lauren said, "I'm dying for a Ben Josh collaboration." And I'm ashamed if I miss Josh on TCM talking about movies. She did because I watched it. Yeah, you promoted it on Twitter. Yeah, and it was great. Are you going to go back and do it again? I was on with Ben to talk about courtroom movies. Yes, it was all trial stuff. And I oh, didn't fun. realize, stupidly, I'm sure he did, I didn't realize how many courtroom movies there are. I mean, there's some well-known ones. Did you watch 12 Angry Men? For some reason, we couldn't get 12 Angry Men, right? Okay. Did you witness for the prosecution? We no, Wait, wait. We got 12 Angry Men. We couldn't get witness for the prosecution. That's I okay. think that's what yep. it was. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um and I think we couldn't do a few good men, and we couldn't do the verdict. Oh. There were a bunch of like really oh. well-known, more recent ones, and then there were movies from like the forties and fifties I'd never heard of. But you know, Breaker Morant uh, was great. Judgment at Nuremberg. Oh yeah, it was very interesting, and I would be happy to do it again. Um, okay, let's start a petition. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's yeah. great. I'll tweet at TCM Turner Classic Mankiewicz. Perfect. Is that what we're... Perfect. <laughs> TM. Okay, just. Stop trying to worm your way back into my good graces. I am. I am. Because I also didn't tell you my sister actually knew Paul Flores. I'm just no, kidding. No, 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 Don't. Never do that to you. No, it's fine. It's fine. I love it. So before we go, anything you want to promote? Any new episodes? Are we going to get more episodes this season from you? Oh, sure. Or are we? Okay, good. We're already in April, but you guys go forever well there's one that i'm um about to start working on uh this coming week which is if it's not completely shot it's almost completely shot so it has to be written and edited and i think that's going to run in may that's going to be the next one and then there's a couple of other things happening over the summer that will either run during the summer or will run in the fall one of the things that we're having a little trouble adjusting to is you know there's this writer's strike coming um so a lot of the tv shows the scripted tv shows that you take for granted um may not be back at the time that you, wow. you want them mm. so yeah. if if this writer's strike does happen and if it drags on and if it delays scripted dramas then uh, there may be more dateline um so there's certainly um there's certainly um going to be opportunities to do more and more and more and we originally thought we were just going to be doing two hours until May and then hours over the summer, one hour episodes, and then going back to two hours. And now we just found we're going to be doing two hours all through the summer. So we're going to have to, Oh my to, gosh. I know that we're going to accelerate. That's more work for us. Yeah, Josh. It's more that work doesn't for, work for me. I know. And it's more work for all of us, but we're very happy. And then I've got a lot of podcasts coming. So you have the last day on Peacock. Is that over? Is that still going? Well, we're ready to do another season, but Peacock has not yet commissioned another season. I keep hoping that mm. they will because it, it did okay. very I'm well. I'm starting a second petition. Right. That's a second second petition. And uh, then you're doing this other podcast that's like where you and the hosts chat about episodes. Yes. It's called Talking Dateline. Yeah. And kind of because what, a date with Dateline was taken. Right. Exactly. Because you guys have given us the idea. And First time we did it, I interviewed Keith about his episode, and now I just interviewed Andrea about the episode that's going to run. Let me look at the calendar here. The, the episode's going to run on Friday the 21st. Andrea and I are going to – we've already recorded a conversation about that. 
Sorry, episode. is this air right after the episode? Well, yeah. What we do is that the person who's asking the questions, which in this case is me, I look at the the screeners or whatever. the screeners of the episode, which can change a little bit, but not tremendously. It's a good way of getting the parameters of the story and what people look like on camera and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so then I record the conversation with whoever it was, in this case, first Keith and now Andrea, just chatting about the episode and some behind the scenes stuff and what it was like to interview this person and that person and how long you were on the story, all kinds of sort of a lot of what we talk about here. And then it runs, it drops as a podcast for Dateline right afterwards. Like that. So it's a little bit like The Talking Dead. I wonder if that's why they called it Talking Dateline, because The Walking Dead had a show called Talking Dead that was on immediately following. Yeah, an after show. This is like that. This is like that. So do you don't have any um, main separate from Dateline, but attached to Dateline podcasts coming up? Like Keith has the Mustang one. That's I have now. one. Well, I have a Missing in America series that's going to air right. it, mm. probably in June. We're, we're, we've done a bunch of them already. We're sort of assembling those. And I'll have a more major one original podcast in the fall. Ooh. Oh, great. In September or October. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Well, we thank you again. We just think you're the best. And we can't thank you enough for supporting our show. It's always a pleasure to be here. And And being so generous with the fans and answering their questions. Well, you know, this is why we're here, you know. I mean, look, if you ran a dry cleaners, right, and you saw somebody on the street and they were like, hey, how are you? Would you be like, hey, bring your suit in? Or would you be like, get the hell away from me, you know? Come on. I mean. I'm sure there are plenty that would say get the hell away from me. These are the customers, you know. Yeah, but not me. So, no. yeah. Plus, which I love hearing from people what they think of the broadcast. I do. Mm-hmm. You know, tells us whether whether you know, whether know what you're doing is getting through, whether people are picking up on the right stuff or the stuff that you mm-hmm. want them to pick up on. Sometimes they are. It's really mm-hmm. getting better yeah. and better, honestly. Yeah. Thank you. This is a good Thank season. You. Last yeah. season was good, too, and this is even Last better. Last season yeah, this was... season's good. I agree. I yeah. agree. The whole team is really doing great, and especially the hosts. I, I will pass that along. Thank you. We're big fans. And I'm big fans of the two of you and of this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. And this week, be your own mank. Oh, yes. Do what a mank would do. (laughs) Yeah. And he might start wearing vests. No, no, I'm not. I I wore vests in the 70s and 80s, but I was much more sort of dressed up then. It was the vest part of a three-piece suit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, There we go. Well, that's fancy. I had a lot of three-piece suits, yeah. With patterns? Pocket watch? No, I did not have a pocket watch, and oh. uh, and I didn't always Monocle? wear. I didn't always wear a pocket square. That started in the eighties, oh. and I, I did not just wear the vest without the jacket. I was very big on the whole look. But then, when I was in New York, starting in yeah eighty six, I always wore suspenders. So I went through about Ooh, ten. I went through about ten, cool. ten years where I always wore suspenders, and I still have dozens of pairs of suspenders that I can't bring myself to get rid of so it was a jacket wow collared shirt suspenders tie tie that was and, the... and pocket square yeah is that the gordon gecko oh, that's all yes. of it yes when well, the uh, yeah well, wall street inspired mm-hmm. a lot of people to dress street. that way yeah it's i love it it's a good oh, look. Yeah. no that was particularly in new york which is like a, yeah it's like a super new york tie. when i moved out here i was the uh, to la i was the only person wearing suspenders and when i when i arrived in la in 91 people were looking at me like like i had three heads makes it cool <laughs> 
Yeah, I stuck Unique. with it. I stuck with it. I was very See, and now Lester's copying you, and here right. we are. There we, go. Uh, we are. Now. Circle. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Halloween. Do you have a costume for this October 31st? And there you go. I always think, and I might do it. I can't say it'll never happen. I mean, clearly the person to go as is Keith. Yeah. Right. I could, you know, dress like this, like with a, like. I could get you the wig. I need a wig. If you need assistance, I could get you the wig. Yeah. Yeah. Need that wig, you know. Perfection. uh, Sneakers. Just lean. Oh yeah, that's right. Just constantly. Just kind of be askew at all times. Do you have a Do you have a leather jacket? I could get one. Yeah, I could get that like that Letterman jacket that he wears. Yeah. 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 Oh, you must do this. That would be the that would be the way to go. Yeah. NBC probably helped me with that. You might break the internet. I think that's really good. That would be good (laughs) to do that. Because Because usually the gift we get of you is the finger waggle. That and then there's a there's one where I'm pretending to cry. There's one where I kind of go. I kind of go. Side eye, and there aren't a lot of me out there. There's one where I'm putting on glasses and looking into the screen because I was starting some Zoom call, I think, and they recorded that. Don't tell him that your sister also knew another serial killer and almost was in his clutches. There is another one in that area that she actually... There are several murders that happened two years later from Rex Krebs in San Luis Obispo, and they were two college girls. So it was two years after Kristen Smart. If we do that... If you do that, my sister's there for you. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to call you. But in the meantime, (laughs) I'm just going to be very, very disappointed. (laughs) She had a lot of like weird stuff about Cal Poly that I was like, oh... I don't know. Cal Poly is an interesting yep. place. Yeah, that probably yeah. wouldn't have been interesting, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. So sorry. This is a rift in the relationship that you guys were not. I didn't see that coming. I thought this I was going to be a normal shot. interview. I and I did not know. About the hands. Yeah. Very cold.